I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly regarded. This time around, we are looking at It Happened One Night, released in 1934 from the 1935 7th Annual Academy Awards Ceremony. Hi, Blaine. Hey, Trey. So, we should dig into this. Before we do, I just want to take the opportunity to congratulate you on air for your recent nuptials. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been a couple of months, and it'll be, have been a couple of years by the time people hear this, but this is what happens when we're recording this far in advance, and this erratically. Enough lead time, we should never miss a deadline, but we do have a habit of, you know, recording two or three episodes and then taking two or three months off. All right, but... Yes, this time around, we are looking at It Happened One Night. Our first real comedy on the list that's not a musical. Yep, and it's, I think, probably our first Frank Capra film. He directed it. It was written by Robert Riskin and Samuel Hopkins Adams, although Samuel Hopkins Adams, his writing credit comes from the short story that it was based on, and Robert Riskin is the one who actually did the adapted screenplay. and then. We've got Clark Gable as Peter, Claudette Colbert as Ellie, Walter Connolly as Andrews, Roscoe Carnes as Shapley, Jameson Thomas as Wesley, Alan Hale Sr., not to be confused with his son, who was the sheriff on Gillian's Island, and Alan Hale plays Danker, Arthur Hoyt as Zeke with Blanche Frederici as Zeke's wife, and Charles C. Wilson as Gordon. So the original release date was February 22nd. 1934. So just to give a quick uh, summary of It Happened One Night, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Claudette Colbert plays Ellie, who has recently eloped with King Wesley, an aviator. Her father is opposed to the marriage, trying to get her to uh, agree to an annulment, and she basically uh, runs away attempts to take a bus trip to New York to reunite with her husband, and along the way meets uh, Peter Warren, a reporter who agrees to help her secretly reconnect with her husband in exchange for the story on their trip. Yep, and of course, this being a Frank Capra film, the, the ultimate happily ever after is not between Claudette Colbert and the husband she had already eloped with at the start of the film. Naturally, it's the, the two leads that we get to know, because it's 1934, so when Clark Gable's in your movie, Clark Gable has to be the one who, quote-unquote, gets the girl at the end. Had you had much exposure to Clark Gable or his films prior to this? My predominant exposure to Clark Gable prior to this was actually through Gone with the Wind, which is something that will be discussing in about five more episodes. So, don't want to go into too much detail, but yes, in terms of the actual Clark Gable, that's what I know. And then, of course, I was 
you know, used to the caricatures with the Dumbo style ears from the Looney Tunes parodies that they tended to do over the years. The, how about yourself? What familiarity did you have with actually the whole cast while we're at it? Claudette Colbert, I predominantly knew from The Egg and I, which kicked off the Ma and Pa Kittle series of films. And Clark, Clark Gable, like you said, um, Gone with the Wind, my paternal grandmother, that was her favorite film. You know, she had the collectible plates, all of that type of paraphernalia. That's my primary exposure to both of them. I'm a little bit more familiar with Clark Gable, just not any of the, just mostly movies he's made after this. I'm not really familiar with his work before this point. Yeah, and I'm really the same. And Claudette Colbert, running through her IMDb listings, I see a number of movies that I've heard of and are on my I should watch this list that I haven't gotten to. And it's similar with with Clark Gable. I mean, I haven't seen the 1925 Ben-Hur, where he had a small uncredited role, but he was working pretty hard going through this. He's got a lot of credits before this. This is maybe halfway through his credit list, but his big ones are still coming. I mean, going through this list, there are three Clark Gable movies I can guarantee we're going to talk about because he's been in three Best Picture winners. Right. I asked, and maybe I'm jumping into this a little bit too early, but I don't think it's a secret to anyone who knows much about film that this film didn't just win the Best Picture award. This was the first one to pull off the hat trick of sweeping what's considered to be the big five. Best film, best director, best actress, best actor, and then either best adapted screenplay or best original screenplay. And we could talk about it a little bit more as we go on in the show, but this seemed like an early win for him relative to his career. Yeah, like I said, it, it's about halfway through the list, but if you go back through the the early stuff, there's a lot of, you know, man in corner, Roman guard, and just uncredited, 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 uncredited. So it's it's stuff that if he hadn't become the star he did, it wouldn't even necessarily appear on his IMDb, right? These are places where people are watching it and going, holy crap, look, there's Clark Gable in that corner there. This definitely was a, a the first real big get for him in terms of film roles. Looking at it, it could be, you know, in, in more modern terms, this could be like Tom Hanks in Philadelphia. Yes. or flipping the other way from the serious to the, the comedic, this could be like Leslie Nielsen in Airplane, where you know, you've got someone with a long list of credits prior to that, and then from this point forward, he has a very different career. As, as you said, I mean, by the time we're in the seventh annual awards, it was building a little bit. There were 16 awards that year, and this obviously wouldn't be eligible for all of them. Outstanding production was the award at the time, which has over the years evolved into Best Picture. This was the winner, obviously, up against The Barretts of Wimple Street, Cleopatra, which had Claudette Colbert in the title role, Flirtation Walk, The Gay Divorcee, Here Comes the Navy, The House of Rothschild, Imitation of Life, One Night of Love, The Thin Man, Viva Via, or Villa, and The White Parade. Best Director, Frank Capra, beat out 
Victor Schertzinger for One Night of Love and W.S. Van Dyke for The Thin Man. Best Actor, Clark Gable beat Frank Morgan from The Affairs of Cellini and William Powell for The Thin Man. Best Actress, Claudette Colbert beat out Betty Davis in Of Human Bondage, Grace Moore in One Night of Love, and Norman Shearer in The Barretts of Wimple Street. For the Best Adaptation, it beat out The Thin Man by Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett based on the novel by Dashiell Hammett. And it beat out Viva Villa, Ben Hecht, based on the novel by Edgecombe Pynchon and Obi Stade. It was not eligible for Best Original Story. That went to Manhattan Melodrama by Arthur Caesar, which beat Hideout and the Richest Girl in the World. The live-action short subjects, The Cucaracha, won that. Again, this was not eligible. That was the short subject comedy. Live-action short subject novelty went to City of Wax. Again, this is not a short subject, right. so it's not eligible. I suppose it would have been eligible for the best scoring. That went to One Night of Love by the Columbia Studio Music Department, which beat out the RKO Studio Music Department, which had two nominations, Gay Divorcee and The Lost Patrol. The best song went to The Continental from The Gay Divorcee. Now, the best sound recording went to One Night of Love. I, I don't see why it wouldn't have been eligible for that, but it was not nominated, even though there were eight nominees. Best Art Direction went to The Merry Widow, which beat out The Affairs of Cellini and The Gay Divorcee. Cinematography went to Cleopatra, you know, as opposed to The Affairs of Cellini or Operator 13. Best Film Editing went to Eskimo, beat out Cleopatra and One Night of Love. Best Assistant Director was Viva Villa, beat out Cleopatra and Imitation of Love. And the Best Short Subject Cartoon was Disney's The Tortoise and the Hare, beating out Holiday Land and Jolly Little Elves. And they gave a juvenile award to Shirley Temple. Mm -hmm. So going through that, One Night of Love actually had the most nominations in the year. That had six nominations. And it had two wins. It was the only other film to win multiple awards in that year. It Happened One Night had the most wins with five. And Cleopatra, Gay Divorcee, and It Happened One Night had five nominations. Affairs of Cellini, Thin Man, and Viva Villa had four. Imitation of Life had three, and Barrett's of Wimple Street, Flirtation Walk, and The White Parade each had two. So there we go. The big numbers and statistics for that ceremony are now out of the way. Yes. So what was your impression of It Happened One Night? I think I actually knew its reputation more than the film. So I, I actually want to watch it again because it, to me it didn't feel like it lived up to the hype. Like, it's a perfectly entertaining movie. Uh, there's a couple of moments that rub me the wrong way and would not be made in this era because there are story beats that are sexist in nature, but that was not recognized or problematic for enough of the audience when this came out for them to prevent or to prevent them from putting it in the films as they would today. Um, I'm thinking in particular, there is a scene where Clark Gable sees Claudette's character coming and the only empty spot on the bus is right next to him. So he pretends to be asleep and moves his hand palm up onto her spot, hoping that she's going to sit on his hand so he can cop a feel. Mm -hmm. And another one where he's carrying her over his shoulder across a river and he asks her to hold the luggage for a moment just so he can spank her because he doesn't like what she's saying. Oh, I, I interpreted that scene differently, but okay. <laughs> Okay. Still, the, like, the fact that he 
he says, hold this, spanks her, and then takes it back. And the, ha the hand palm up on the seat. If those story beats weren't put into movies today, coming up through major studios, they would not be assigned to characters we're supposed to like. No, that I agree with. My, my read on the crossing the river was she was holding his shoes and the way she was holding them, they kept banging into his back. So I thought that was more of a, hey, stop that. Still inappropriate. I'm not defending it. But that was just a, I, I didn't, my read wasn't that it was in reaction to what she was saying, but it was in reaction to her letting his shoes continue to dig into and bang on his back. Okay. I think you and I may have mentioned this off air before. It, when I was in college, I worked for a company called Suncoast Motion Picture Company, which was a movie retailer. And when you applied there, they had a little quiz that you had to fill out. And one of the questions on the quiz was, what were the three films to quote-unquote sweep the big five at the Oscars? So I was aware of it as early as the early 90s through that. I, Having watched a number of the nominees, it's not my favorite film that was nominated for the year, but critically I can agree that it was probably the best film, at least out of the nominees, if not the year. My favorite film out of the group is The Thin Man, but that movie gets by so much on the chemistry of William Powell and Myrna Loy. Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable make a good screen duo, but they just, the chemistry between the two different sets of leads, William Powell and Myrna Loy, by, you know, leaps and bounds, have a better on screen chemistry. The, the story, I have to admit, is a bit of a mess. So I think it, hap or it happened one night, wins just by virtue of a better narrative between the two. And then this is something that was somewhat fresh for that for the for movies at this time. I mean, if you go back and look at the nominees, you have a couple of musicals which Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire are starting to break the mold of musicals, but up to this point they've been kind of the standard we are putting on a show type of musical to where there's some drama amongst the cast and crew of a vaudeville or Broadway production but you're basically seeing that production get put together and then some some heavy dramas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that The Thin Man probably is the most comparable, at least by reputation. I have to admit that this is the only film from 1934's nomination list that I've actually seen, although The, the Thin Man is very close to the top of my must-see list. So that, that's one that I have fairly high hopes for. And I'm actually familiar with the radio series that spun out of that, which I quite enjoyed, as well as the old-time radio spoof Thrilling Adventure Hour has the Beyond Belief segment, which is their take on the Thin Man. So it's their Nick and Nora Charles, who are full-blown alcoholics and deal with supernatural crime. Highly recommended. It's, yeah, it's a podcast that's worth tracking down. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, that's a few decades after this. That's not what we're here to discuss today. I, I want to talk a little bit about Frank Capra. This was his second year being nominated. 
and it's customary Capra in that it's optimistic and a, a little light. This isn't a dark film. There aren't there are a few leches, but other than that, there's not you know there aren't any real sinister characters. But this isn't he he's not in his message film phase yet. No, although that's not far off. Because his next three films are Broadway Bill, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and Lost Horizon. Yes. Before You Can't Take It With You, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and Meet John Doe, and then a bunch of uncredited wartime documentaries. So, yeah. But I would say that probably the Capra film that people know best, I would probably venture to say is It's a Wonderful Life from 1946. Yes. So, I mean, if, if you know him from that, there's there's similar there's similar touches here you know I, I think he does a really good job of building a cast that feels real and he had a real eye for i'm going to call it americana more than anything else you, you know when when capper presents you with a small town it feels like a real small town and i i don't think any of the characters here quite reach the level of caricature. No, there's some that kind of venture that way. I mean, Ellie's father begins down that path, but they find ways to to redirect him mm -hmm. to show that there's more to him than that caricature. The closest ones to caricatures are probably the ones that are only on screen for a minute or two. And a lot of that is just shorthand. You've only got a minute or two. You don't want to dwell on them, but they you need them to tell your story to make it zig or zag as necessary. So there's, you know, just that the hint of the, the standard, oh, you know, the, the, the simple farmer family and that kind of thing, just enough right? so that you can lean far enough into the cliches that the audience goes, I understand that character, but not far enough that they go, I am tired of that character. Exactly. And a lot of, a lot of the secondary characters get nice little touches you, you mentioned alan hill hit his part on this is uh, towards the latter part of the movie he picks up ellie and peter while they're hitchhiking and then at a rest stop attempts to drive off and steal what few possessions they still have with them on the trip so he's he's basically a highway bandit for lack of a better word but he's a singing highway bandit who likes to make up little songs about whatever pops up in conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so again, yeah, he's necessary for the story, but they find that way to veer. So it, they, it never quite gets old. So, And we've got an, another Capra touch. I would say if you really want to, to see the connection between this and It's a Wonderful Life, that Capra's best-known film, I would think that what really pulls it together and what really set this screenplay apart to win that Oscar is the dialogue for the, the banter between our two leads. It, it, to me, a lot of that banter feels like the banter we get between George Bailey and Mary when they're coming home after getting dumped in the swimming pool at the school dance in, in that walk. So there's this is a little more adversarial because they're not starting off with either of them thinking, I'm going to end up romantically linked to that person. So it's a little bit different than It's a Wonderful Life. There, this is a little more adversarial because she is writing to the man that she believes she loves, and he's just out to get a story. 
everything else is accidental and incidental along the way. They're both snobs, but they're snobs from different walks of life. And they're not, they're not what you think of as the prototypical snob. You know, it's not so much that Ellie looks down on Peter or any of the people that she's around on this road adventure that she's begun. She just has completely different life experiences and has, you know, she's naive to what goes on outside of her, what we presume was a sheltered circle. Similarly, Clark Gable's Peter is snobby in terms of in how he, what he assumes that she does know and doesn't know. And there's a certain, there's also a certain egotistical that comes with that. You know, you don't know the right way to dunk a donut. You don't know the right way to hitchhike for a car. Mm-hmm. Her snobbishness is not, she's not demeaning anyone. Yes. Like thank you, you say, she's just, yeah, she's just out of her element and out of her depth. Whereas he's just, he, he doesn't, I don't, know, I don't I don't want to say he demeans her but maybe he 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 kind of pities her a little bit but it's he looks at her and just recognizes that she's the fish out of water so he and underestimates her yeah he does for sure he figures that she's completely clueless in this world where it turns out that no she's she lacks the experience but not the intelligence so she she catches herself up much more quickly than he anticipated. And she understands, okay, you know, if I do this, I will get the outcome I want. You know, she's definitely better at at hailing cars when they're hitchhiking. She gets them to pull over much faster than he does when he's saying, oh, well, you know, here's the three different thumbs, and he tries all three and none work. And then she, I think this actually launches the trope. I can't think of an earlier example of a gag that was a running gag, at least through the 80s, where you know, they're they're hitchhiking and she gets the car to pull over by showing her thigh instead of showing her thumb. Yes. This has a lot of pop culture touchstones, you know, apocryphally Clark Gable showing that he didn't wear an undershirt made undershirt cells plummet after this film. And the character wasn't an inspiration, was not an inspiration in terms of uh, character or motivation. Um, but I've watched a lot of uh, Looney Tunes documentaries and Fritz Freeling and others talk about using some of the footage for this as kind of a model reference for when they would later do bugs because when they're out on the road and they have no form of transportation, the only food they can find is carrots on the farmstead. So carrots becomes their sole form of sustenance towards the you know last 30 minutes or so of the film. And a lot of the, a lot of the movements that Clark Cable has as he's eating his carrots would later get translated into the model sheets for Bugs Bunny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's another good scene to show her lack of experience too, because the idea of eating an uncooked carrot was just totally foreign to her. Talking about Claudette Colbert, I do think her win was more for a body of work than this performance. I'm suspecting she was nominated for this role just to make it kind of stand out from the pack. But, you know, as you mentioned, three of the films that were nominated, she was the female lead for. And all of them are very different roles. 
She's not a scatterbrain in this, which would become a trope in later screwball comedies. But here, you know, she's the naive uh, socialite imitation of life. She's a world-weary single mother. Cleopatra, she's a very sultry femme fatale. So she showed quite a bit of range in 1934. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is one of the ones that really helps drive it apart. And 1934 Hollywood was a little bit of a a smaller and closer-knit community. And from what I've seen, it also seems like they, because they were more likely to know the nominees well, they were also more likely to give them credit when they realized that the character they're playing is not at all like the human being that they actually are, right? So that they know that there's actual acting involved because they're, for a while there, they stopped really looking at breakout performances by actors seriously because they found, you know, a couple of the people that got awards for breakout performances, they realized, oh, wait a minute, they were just playing it straight. Right. They, they cast someone who has that personality and said, here, say this. And there wasn't a lot of actual acting, so to speak, involved. Even though acting is a lot more than just, you know, how you deliver lines. There's hitting your marks. There's interacting, you know, with your co-stars and so forth. But it was still enough that even the other actors are going, yeah, you know what? There's not enough acting going on there. So when you see someone like Claudette Colbert show that range, and you've got a movie that has the masses gripped, then it it helps stand out. So that I, I say that the overall success of this movie is probably a contributing factor to why this was the film that earned her that nomination rather than her others. And as we mentioned, this this film was something different. It it wasn't the first non musical comedy made by a long shot, but it it's the first one that we've had nominated up to this point. And I, I think it resonated with audiences because we're we're at a period in Hollywood to where particularly to combat and provide some relief and escape from what was going on throughout the Great Depression to where you have all of these very big and lavish productions. A lot of films are set in larger cities, typically New York, to kind of give the rural audience a glimpse into what larger metropolitan life may be. And this turns those tropes on its ear. You know, the the final des- the starting spot is Miami, the destination is New York. But the film's kind of just a road trip through uh, rural parts of America in between. And I think it highlighted some parts of the country and showed maybe a non-bleak but refreshing look at, you know, some of the some of the middle class in the country that other films weren't portraying. Yeah, very much so. There weren't up to this point, as we've seen, they like their historical dramas, they like their big sweeping epics. This is the first one that happens in a fairly short span of time. Like there's you know, a few days, maybe a few weeks between the first and last scene in this film, as opposed to, say, Cavalcade, where, you know, we're spanning decades. Right. Yeah, and it was very much, like you said, there's that, I mean, Cavalcade and a lot of the others were the upper-class families, and we're going to see a return to that. I mean, Gone with the Wind is coming. Right. That as epics go, 
that that's a big one. And looking at the audiences then, often we have found, I mean, again, looking at Cavalcade, looking at Cimarron, some of these movies haven't aged to the point that the modern digital audiences who are now voting for how good these are through Internet Movie Database, through Letterboxd, you know, they're, they're not responding to these movies the same way that the contemporary audiences did. This one is still number one. If you look at the IMDb voters scores for movies released in 1934, this takes the top spot. Mm-hmm. This is the first movie where the Academy Awards, we should mention, are just based on the calendar year. This is the first ceremony where that happened. So it's much easier to pull that list. We do the same at Letterboxd. This is number one. So like I said, it is a strong movie. I did not respond as well to it as I had hoped to. But again, that could have been because my expectations were unreasonable for it. You know, it's when going through the stats in advance, when it's number one across the board, wins best picture was the first clean sweep. It's thoroughly entertaining. I was expecting something a little more life-altering. Like the, wow, I'm so glad I saw that movie. I won't look at movies the same way again kind of experience. And it's not that. It's just one that really fits the popular sensibilities and will entertain just about everyone that we've seen. I agree. And I, again, I'm, I'm not besmirching their performances at all. I, I really think it comes down to the chemistry between Gable and Colbert. It's, it's fine. I mean, you don't walk away going, there's no way in the world these two would ever be uh, attracted to each other. But it's the same year in which The Thin Men came out and Loy and Pal have such a great chemistry that, you know, they have a career together of a, around 10 or so films. You know, The, the Gay Divorcee came out which is when Astaire and Rogers are on their rise. They had a great on-screen chemistry that just sparkled. Colbert and Gable mm-hmm. don't have that chemistry. Uh, the, the, I know that there will be people who will disagree with me, but I have not been as big of a fan of Sleepless in Seattle as some other folks have been because I just didn't buy the chemistry between Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, I felt it kind of felt flat. I think Colbert and Gable have better chemistry than that, but they don't set the screen on fire together. They work well together for this film. Again, using the example of Sleepless in Seattle, there's a big enough audience who found they worked well together that when they said, okay, we've got You've Got Mail coming, reuniting Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, you know, just saying, putting these two together is going to sell tickets. You say, we've got to stare in Ginger Rogers together again, you sold tickets. You say, Powell and Lowy are back for another Thin Man movie. You sold tickets. That's the only promise it took. It's like, I mean, today, there's a segment of the audience that I am definitely a member of that says, it's part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You've got my ticket money. Yep. And so there, yeah, there are pairings where you say, these two are together. You've got my, my ticket money. And if, if they build a movie saying, yeah, Gable and Colbert are together again, I wouldn't say, you have my ticket money. I'd say, okay, show me a trailer, right? I'd, I'd be open to it, but that alone is not enough to sell me on it. So like I said, in, in this case, I haven't seen a lot else from 1934. It sounds like you have. So how would you say that this stacks up 
compared to its competition and just compared to the rest of the year? I would put it in the top 10 for the year, probably even the top five. It, it just, I'm such a big mark for William Powell and Myrna Lloyd. We, we've got a film coming up in a couple of episodes where for a portion of the film, they're a pairing and I'm, I'm looking forward to it because they're a pairing. Um, you know, this was the year when Shirley Temple broke big. So, you know, if you're a fan of her films, and I'll admit I, I am, so they're a delight. You're, we're starting to get to the years where film series and genre films are a bigger portion of the box office, even if they're not critically acclaimed. So, you know, this is the year that the second Tarzan film came out as an example. So you're seeing these mini Marvel Cinematic Universes, so to speak, become a Hollywood routine. Uh, so if you're a fan of those series of films, they those tend to elevate higher in your list for the year. But, you know, Imitation of Life didn't really do much for me. Cleopatra was fine as a historical epic. Barrett's of Wimpole Street is good, but primarily for a dark performance by Charles Lawton. So, I mean, out of those nominated, uh, second probably to The Thin Man, I'd probably say the same thing for overall 1934. Gay Divorcee's real work is definitely worth watching. Uh, Stand Up and Cheer from Shirley Temple's definitely worth watching. Probably a few others that I'm not recalling off. Uh, the top of my head, but Of Human Bondage isn't bad. Le Leslie Howard doesn't really do anything for me, but again, Betty Davis gives a really great, nasty performance in that film, and I, I mean that in terms of just an un all-around unattractive character, but she owns it, and she grabs the screen, and she does not let go of it. And actually, now that you mention it, looking at, at the details here, I should have read the fine print more carefully before going through it. You may have noticed a lot of these categories for the Academy Awards had three nominations, but Best Actress had four. Betty Davis was not officially nominated on the ballot. She ended up at the ceremony being listed as a nominee because she had that many write-in votes, which makes me wonder, had her name officially been on the ballot, could she have taken that award from Claudette Colbert? If there's enough write-ins that they said, okay, she needs acknowledgement, we're going to add her to the nomination ballot. I, I think so, because and we'll talk about this more <laughs> as we go along. It takes guts sometimes to play those unglamorous, unlikable roles, and that's what this was. From an actress who was going to prove to be a great actress, but if it had not have been well-received, this could have ended her career. Yeah. Colbert and Davis both did well after this year, so... Yes. So did you have any final thoughts? I, I don't think so. You know, sometimes we try to put this in uh, context for modern audiences. You did that a little bit. There's, there's some mild sexism in it, some violence that may seem shocking. You, you know, her... Her father, or Claudette Colbert's father, 
slaps her in the face during an argument, you know, towards the beginning of the film. I I think he, I think most adults could handle those scenes. If this is something you're talking think about uh watching with somebody younger because hey, it's made by Frank Capra and he made It's a Wonderful Life and we watch that every Christmas, it it would be worth having a conversation or two with the tween before you watch the film. But uh, it doesn't really have dark themes or a lot of the uh, racism that are problematic for a lot of the other films of the time. No, yeah, it's... The audiences have matured, but this was not grossly inappropriate. Like I said, there's a couple of missteps, but we're looking... I don't know, maybe if you, you string those, those things together, it's probably less than a minute of footage, right? They, so they're there, but they're not nearly as prevalent. I mean, by the time we're done the 1930s, we're going to have much bigger issues to speak of with other Best Picture winners and nominees that are coming up. Yes. I mean, one of them is debatably the second most racist film in Hollywood history after Birth of a Nation. And that's the 1915 Birth of a Nation. I haven't seen the more recent version where they were trying to take the, the name back for some reason. Uh, in any event, so I think that's about it. We should just wrap up as usual saying, who would we recommend this to? You already talked about one group of people that might take a look at this. So I don't know. Yeah, the Frank Capra fans, the you know anyone who's a fan of these stars. It's worth checking out, but I think, like Trey already said, like this is a well-made romantic comedy in in the same sort of genre as your Sleepless in Seattle or You've Got Mail or even When Harry Met Sally, where you have the the two somewhat unlikely leads, kind of you know falling in love almost unintentionally and against their desires. And I would say, as I would recommend it to to fans of those romantic comedies who enjoy some good banter and want to see the Americana, as long as you recognize that this came from an era where the sexism you see here was not recognized for what it was by audiences or filmmakers. So it's, yeah, these sexist actions were not because someone sat down and chose to demean women. It was just, well, this is always good for a gag. Yeah. The, I don't know if it's a popular enough subgenre for there to be fans of, but if your friend, if you, if you enjoy the story structure of a road movie, I, I would recommend it on that basis as well. All right, so that's about it, and then I guess listeners can join us again next month when we uh, come back to discuss another Clark Gable film, Mutiny on the Bounty. Yes. To our listeners out there, please join us for that. I know I got my copy through the iTunes store to watch via the Apple TV. So it's definitely available in those means. And thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir. I want some more.